and welcome back to the Dreamcast. I am your host, Denise Walsh. I combine science, scripture, and stories that will inspire you to dive deep, break through your own personal glass ceiling, and design a life of your dreams. Are you overworked, overstressed, and overwhelmed? You want life to be different, but you don't even know how to get there. Man, oh man, I lived there myself. And in my experience with working with thousands of people from all walks of life, there is one simple thing that holds so many of us back, a lack of time management. We may know what we want, but we often don't know how to get there and don't feel like we can add one more thing into our already busy day. And that's exactly why I created the Dream Life Action Planner. It's a 90-day inspired game plan that will give you total clarity on your greatest priorities and skyrocket your productivity on the tasks that matter most. And now, for a limited time, you can get your own copy for free. And when you go to denisewalsh.com slash action. Denise Walsh, D-E-N-I-S-E-W-A-L-S-H dot com slash action, A-C-T-I-O-N. Put your information in and we will send this action planner directly to your inbox so you can set your goals, reprioritize your calendar and design your dream life today. Big, big welcome back to the Dreamcast. Our next guest overcame drug addiction, PTSD from fighting the war in Iraq with the Marines, where one of his jobs was actually to walk in front of vehicles to find explosives. He fought through depression and alcoholism that pushed him through the brink of suicide. And since then, has made a complete Pivot has built global businesses, run ultra marathons, and explored the most hostile environments on the planet from mountains to caves to polar ice caps. Oh my gosh! So, in his book, Fearvana The Revolutionary Science of How to Turn Fear into Health, Wealth, and Happiness, he combines his life experience with years of research in science and spirituality. And I am so excited to hear more of his story and to dive into his transformation. So big Dreamcast, welcome to Akshay Navati. Eh, kind of. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> All the links will be in the show notes. But oh my gosh, so we actually met, we just realized a few years ago at PodFest and have worked with Jack Canfield and have yeah. uh, kind of run in similar circles, which is probably one reason why your message is so resonant with me. And I'm really excited to hear more. So why don't we start by just sharing a bit about military experience, why you got into that, and then the years coming home. Sure. So I got into the military because, well, I actually had come out of a pretty dark world when I first moved to the U.S. I moved at 13, and about 15 or 16 years old, I got very heavily into drugs, very heavy into drugs, into alcohol. I used to cut myself, burn, have these burn marks on my arm, was just in this really dark space. I lost two friends to drug addiction and was headed down there myself. And one day, I watched the movie Black Hawk Down. I don't know if you've ever seen yeah. it. Yeah. Uh-huh. That movie was a trigger that just transformed my life because watching the courage of men in combat sacrificing their lives for their fellow human beings, it just triggered something in me that what kind of human beings would have that kind of courage to do that? And so almost overnight, I stopped doing drugs and decided to join the Marines because I wanted to test myself. I wanted to see, would I be that kind of person? And I obviously I didn't have an answer at the time because I was living a very selfish and a meaningless existence, right? 
Wow. Did you have a rock bottom where you were like, I can't do this anymore? Or was it really just a spark of inspiration? Well, I had a rock bottom after the war with alcoholism. But with the drugs, it was more of a spark of inspiration. Because after the watching the movie, I read the book Black Hawk Down. And then I started reading book after book after book, just plowing through books on military life, on combat, on military training. And it wasn't long after that, I, you know, just, all right, I'm done. This is not who I want to be anymore. And slowly started, obviously, I wasn't very fit. So I slowly started kind of training to get into the Marines. But it took me a year and a half to get in because I have a blood disorder that two doctors told me would kill me in boot camp. So I almost had to fight my way into the Marines as well. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting how sometimes it takes this like rock bottom, but sometimes it just really takes this new spark and this new excitement to make that pivot. Behavior change. It's a fascinating thing. And I've gone through these different pivots, right? Since after the war, when, when I hit the rock bottom, but uh, always then that that's my work now is really exploring and how do we tap into that quite consciously. How long were you in the military? So I was in the Marines six years. I got in uh, like after, you know, it took me about a year and a half, fought my way in, got the waivers, went into the Marines six years. And I did one tour in Iraq in 2007. So after joining the Marines, I started to look for other ways to push myself, to test my fears, to explore my limitations and my, or my, my perceived limitations. So I went mountain climbing, cave diving, rock climbing, skydiving. I mean, you name it, like nature and outdoor sports became my playground to explore the limitations of the human spirit, really. Then in 2007, I was deployed to Iraq as an infantry Marine, where, as you said, one of my jobs was to walk in front of these vehicle convoys to look for bombs before they could blow us up. So, you know, a dangerous job, as you might imagine. (laughs) As an infantry Marine, you're out there for seven months, you know, on the front lines. So it was, I mean, it was a beautiful, powerful experience, intense, of course, you're in war, but I really struggled. The hardest part was after coming back. When I got back, I missed life at war. I missed the simplicity of life at war. I missed the experience there. I couldn't handle the normal world. So I wanted to keep, I kept volunteering to go back and I didn't get my chance. So I started drinking a lot. You know, I did have corporate job for a year and a half that I eventually quit to start my own business. But in this process, it was a, it was a slow descent that eventually hit to this rock bottom. You hear of the trauma of war and often you think that the hard times that vets have afterwards is because of the trauma. And that certainly is part of it, I'm sure. But I've never quite heard that, at least at war, I knew what to expect, or I I had my routine. And and when you come back to normal life, everything is different. That's one thing I think people don't address about the nature of war. It's not just that, like the, the trauma of war. In war, life is very simple. When all you have to worry about is living and dying. In Iraq, my world was my men and my mission. Life is simple out there. This world is very complicated. You come back, everything, you're paying, you pay, got to pay bills. How do you pay the bills? Every little thing. I mean, meeting people. Like I remember when I came back after seven months, meeting girls in college was once again now a thing. You know, like just everything is like a challenge that is just another, every, every class, if you get different grades, when you, when you know, when, and then after having a job, every little, there's hundreds of different little bills you got to pay. And everything is so much more complicated. In war, it's not. You're not paying bills. Your, your money is being saved. You're not paying anything. You're just worry about the mission, right? And uh, there's a simplicity to it, but there's also an addictive nature to the adrenaline rush that war inherently provides to the nature of the experience, which makes it very addictive, which makes it very alluring. And I mean, that's partly why I started when I back then I used to do these things. But like, I mean, soon after coming back, not long after that, or after getting out of the Marines, I spent a month dragging a 190 pound sled for 350 miles across the world's second largest ice cap in temperatures as low as minus 40 degrees. Now, beautiful experience, very positive in the sense like it's, you know, positive expedition. It's not drinking myself to death, 
But the truth be told is I was doing it to run away. I was doing it to run away from this normal world because, again, when you're dragging a 90-pound, 90-pound sled across an ice cap, life is simple. It's one step in front of the other, right? So that was the challenging part. Only now, through all my work, have I learned to sort of replace that external war with the worthy internal one. Like, I believe we need an internal war to find inner peace. Mm. And um, it, it led me through some dark places to get there. So, yeah, so as I was saying, though, you know, I got through one point where after five days of binge drinking, I woke up and thought about killing myself. I just said this pattern of drinking and sobering up would never end. And when I drink, I mean, it wasn't just a little bit of drinking. I'm talking like bottles of vodka, drink till I pass out, wake up, drink till I pass out for days on end. And finally said, let me just get the knife, cut my wrist and end it all. That was obviously like a really low moment. Yeah, that was, that was a rock bottom. And so yeah. when you're in that rock bottom and you really don't see hope, you don't see a way out, you don't see that life can change, you feel super stuck. Mm -hmm. Tell me about the pivot. How did you grow through that? Yeah. You know, one thing that's ironic that I, when I was sharing this with people, sometimes with people is that when somebody's in that or when you're in that, looking at something inspirational is not helpful. You know, because sometimes people ask me, okay, how do I help somebody, you know, in that? And, and they'll think that if I share some inspirational story, maybe share mine, that will be help. But sometimes it's not because you only feel worse about yourself, that that person is so much better than me. Like when I'm in that dark space, I don't want to see anybody who's doing anything amazing. I just feel worse about myself, right? Mm -hmm. And we're naturally going to compare ourselves. So at first it was just really just being within, pausing, like taking the time to really reflect within myself not, I mean, just shutting off the outside world. You have to go within, right? Like be still, go within. And then once you start doing that, like as I started researching, so then I started looking for answers, you know, reading books, uh, reading neuroscience, psychology, spirituality, because I was going to a VA therapist at the time. And, you know, not, to, they were good people, but in my experience, having done all this research now, they, they were just operating from a bad playbook. And a lot of forms of therapy, as I've come to learn, are operating, again, might be good people, but operating from a bad playbook. And so I started to separate myself from these conditions, these, these patterns that I realized were not me. Like I'll give you an example, a concrete example of what I mean by that. So when I came back from the war, I was very jumpy with loud noises. I didn't like crowds. I had survivor's guilt from losing a friend in the war. And these were all symptoms that they said equated to post-traumatic stress disorder. But the reality is this is not a disorder. This is a normal human response to war. And post-traumatic stress is not indicative of a disorder. Those are two separate things. And we assign them as one, right? And it's the same thing that we do in all areas, not just in context of war. We, we attach disorder to words like anxiety. You know, we demonize words like stress. We demonize words like fear. Any emotion that's challenging, like sadness, grief, guilt, fear, we deem a negative emotion. And it's not a negative emotion. It's a challenging emotion. Like it's harder to deal with than happiness, joy, and serenity and calm, but it's not negative, right? And by deeming it negative, we fuel into this downward spiral that I should not have this emotion. Because the experts tell me it's wrong. You know, be fearless. Don't be scared. I'm like, be scared. Be scared of everything, right? It doesn't matter what you're scared of. What matters is what you, what you do with that fear. So by learning to separate myself from my emotions, my thoughts, my experiences, I realized I'm not my thoughts, my feelings, and my experiences. I'm the thinker of my thoughts, the feeler of my feelings, and the experiencer of my experiences. And in that space, I started to make shifts. That space is your destiny, what you do in that space. But you have to first recognize there is a space. Ooh, okay. I want to repeat that. I'm the thinker of my thoughts. I'm the feeler of my feelings and I'm the experiencer of my experiences. Mm -hmm. So you can take that step back and you can see it and decide, is this something I want to continue or do I want to change it? Or at least you're not owning it. And I feel like that's the pause. 
right? That's the pause where then that shift can be made. Mm-hmm. So as you were starting to learn about how the brain works and mm-hmm. neuroplasticity and you can mm-hmm. really retrain your brain mm-hmm. and, and then the, the science of gratitude and, and mm-hmm. all of that kind of stuff, how did your outside life start to change? It was a slow shift. Like the, that was sort of the rock bottom that led to the, these inner transformations. And as I started doing it, then, you know, the business was starting to grow. That's what then led me to my book, because initially this path was just to heal myself, you know. But of course, by no means was I the only person suffering or have I been, the, you know, have, am I the only person who suffered in life? And there were so many people suffering around me. I mean, I've seen it in the context of extreme scenarios like war, extreme poverty. Uh, but in daily life, everybody's got their struggles. Everybody's got their suffering. I was seeing it with my veteran buddies. So it led me to this concept of Firavana, which I ultimately then spent years writing a book on. I mean, I read hundreds of books to research as for, for my own, sharing my own life experience, interviewing amazing, amazing, amazing people. To, to write this book. And that book has been a game changer for not just my own, my business, and my brand, but also just, it seems to be making a positive impact. All the profits are going to charities. We've donated thousands and thousands of dollars to very worthwhile causes all over, but really, and, and so that was the shift is, is helping people. I mean, the ethos of the idea and everything I do now is to help people develop a positive relationship to the experience of suffering, however it shows up to any kind of struggle, because I believe that the single greatest problem that stands in the way of our well-being as human beings, as humanity, is our negative relationship to struggle, to suffering, to challenge, to obstacles, any, whatever word you want to use. And the ethos of Firavana is in, well, often I summarize it in two words, it's to suffer well, like to embrace the pain, to embrace the challenges. These are not negative, whatever it may be, right? And it's funny. So when I do talks on this, I'll often start with saying things like, you know, show words like fear, pain, adversity, su- struggle, suffering, uh, stress, anxiety. Who here thinks of these as positive words? And you could, do, you could do this anywhere in the world and nobody is raising their hand thinking of these positive words. And that's the problem is that these can be, and it's not that they're negative or positive, they're actually neutral and actually they're whatever you want them to be. And if you make them positive, they can fa- in fact be the most positive things in the world, more so than comfort and ease, because it's only through those experiences that we evolve. It's only through struggle that we transform. It's only through suffering that we reach into the next greatest version of ourselves. So it's actually the whole ethos is develop, helping people develop a positive relation to the suffering so they can find, live, and love their path. I call that path your worthy struggle, like that struggle worthy of who you are and who you want to be. That's what now I, now I do with Firavana through the book, through online training programs, through coaching, through all kinds of stuff. Ooh. Oh, this <laughs> is so good because you're exactly right. I know I went through a hard time and I spent a year feeling guilty about it. Uh, you know, I, I push it down. I said, I shouldn't feel this way. How yeah. embarrassing. I should, should, should. I wish I didn't feel this way. And you just kind of try to, yeah. you try to push it away or hide it. And what we're saying is, dude, it's just a part of being human. Yeah. Like yeah. bring it to the light and it's okay. It doesn't have to own you in that way. Exactly. I mean, it's so true what you're saying. Cause yeah, so many people have worked with, you know, they'll, I worked with one guy who was trying to quit his job to start his business. And he said, I'm just waiting for the fear to go away. So I quit my job to start my business. And I said, that's your problem. You're waiting for the fear to go away. It's not going to go away, you know? But he thought that he should be fearless, that he should just be confident as he leaps into the unknown. I'm like, no, you're going to have self-doubt. You're going to have fear. To this day, I have self-doubt as I pursue the next venture. And that's okay. Have all the self-doubt, the fear, the worry, the anxiety. But there's, again, that space between the emotion and you as the feeler of that emotion. And acknowledging there is that space, being aware there is that space, then you can do something with it. And of course, it doesn't mean it's easy. It's far from easy. That's the whole ethos. 
But, <laughs> but the more you try to actually look for easy and fight these emotions, the harder it will be. The faster you just actually accept their presence and accept that they're not you. Because it's actually been shown, neuroscience and spirituality have shown that we don't control what first shows up in our brain. So like right now, if I'm standing cleaning this room and somebody comes in this room with a gun, I'm not choosing to feel fear. My brain's going to register an experience of fear, right? What I do is, what I can do is what happens in that space of the fear and my conscious response to it. Now, that's obviously an extreme scenario coming in with the gun, but in any circumstance, it's the same thing. We can choose what we want to do in that space. And you often even say that the fear is not the enemy of love, of love but an expression of it. Can you explain that? Sure, yeah. I, it, it frustrates me because I know a lot in the self-help world, we often say fear and love are the, they're only two choices. I see this all the time, right? And as if fear is the bad guy and love is the good guy. And no, it's not true. I mean, like, why am I scared of losing someone I love? You know, why are we scared of losing someone? Because I love them. Why am I scared of me dying? If, and I've had moments where I was not scared of dying because I didn't, value, I didn't care about, like, I didn't care if I die. I didn't care about my life, you know, but now I love my life. <laughs> and as a result, I fear death. I, you know, I fear losing people I love. I, why do I, even writing a book on fear, I was terrified that it was going to be a bad book. Now, why am I scared? Because I value my message. I value the essence of the book. I value the impact it can potentially have. If I wasn't scared, I would have just written something and put it out there. Because I was scared, I studied from authors like Jack Canfield, like Tim Ferriss, authors who've written good books. I must have trashed 100,000 words worth of work. I mean, that's months worth of work to write this book. But my fear propelled me to prepare. It propelled me to write a better book. And as a result, I wrote a book that has been worthy of a forward from the Dalai Lama, you know, so, uh, which I got a forward from the Dalai Lama. So, but that only happened because I was so terrified of writing a bad book that I put in a lot more work to write a good, to write a better book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, so it, you know we often say, uh, this is so exciting because I feel like we take, we, t we can take anxiety and be like, this is excitement. If, exactly. if I... If I wasn't a bit nervous, I'd be bored, right? Exactly. But I also love taking this fear and being like, this just means I care about it. Yeah. This really doesn't mean <laughs> I, because sometimes we'll take these emotions and we'll say, well, maybe this is a sign that I shouldn't do it. And we'll, we'll retreat back to what's comfortable. Yeah. But you're saying, no, 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 honor that fear. This just means you care. Absolutely. You know, it's, I mean, why are we scared of public speaking? Because we like, I don't want to look bad. I care about myself. I care about my message. If I didn't care, I would just be wandering about not, you know, <laughs> without any regard to how it all goes. But it's because I value the message. I value myself. I value the audience that I want to serve that the fear shows up. Uh, and, so uh, we're, instead of saying that to get rid of fear, we're saying it's going to be there. Use it for your benefit. Yeah. Seek, like, see, understand the emotion. So dig deep into it. So one way to do it is always asking like, you know, what am I afraid of? Why am I afraid? What's the worst case scenario? How can I prepare for the worst case scenario? I did that while writing my book. And that's why I studied from people like Jack Canfield on how to write a better book, you know, visualize the, uh, visualize not just the, the rewards on the other side of the fear, but actually visualize yourself in the obstacle. So often with the law of attraction world, we'll say, visualize yourself walking in the million dollar ha home on the beach. And it's actually been shown to visualize, to visualize yourself facing the challenge actually has more power. So when I, when I run ultra marathons, I don't visualize myself crossing the finish line. I visualize myself in the pain. Like I know that when I run 50 miles, 80 miles, I'm going to experience many low moments where it's just going to be horrible and awful and deep in the suck, as we call it in the Marines. And, uh, <laughs> and I visualize myself deep in the suck and rising above it. You know, So visualize the pain, know the rewards on the other side of the fear, having clarity on what the reward is 
is very, very important because clarity of purpose of mission of action, it breaks down the process into something simple you just have to follow. You know, that's why, again, I love the Marines. That's why I love doing these expeditions or ultra marathons. It's very clear. Here's the target. So often what happens is the fear consumes us because we have this kind of paradox of choice. With too many choices and lack of clarity, we don't know what to do. So having clarity really makes a difference as well. And just knowing your why, like knowing to the core of your soul, what is your why? Like when I finally finished my book, because it took me a long time to write, I mean, some of it was research and all that, but some of it was without a doubt procrastination, was when I finally said, you know, that if I were to die tomorrow without having shared my message with the world, how would I feel about that? So this fear of the consequences, knowing my why, that I would never have shared this message that I know can make an impact in the world. And that really was an impetus to kind of push and finish this book finally. Mm. When you accept and own and just acknowledge any of those negative emotions, the struggle you're facing, the pain, the fear. And I love when you said you visualize yourself in it and, Mm -hmm. and surviving and you visualize yourself in the heat of the pressure and, and working through it, then it kind of takes away the power of, you know, that's going to happen and it's going to be okay in the end. Absolutely. Absolutely. You're mentally ready for the battle. So when you physically kind of get to it, you're far more prepared. And then, I mean, this is not something I came up with, of course, like Michael Phelps used to do this. He used to visualize himself swimming, not necessarily in the podium, but visualize himself swimming. And so I think it was 2008 or one of the Olympics, his goggles got flooded and it didn't phase him for a second. He still not, he still broke the record and won gold <laughs> because he was so in his mind, he was ready for the, whatever the, the battle, right? Like the, the, that was his battlefield. So he was ready for it. Oh, that, yeah. that's amazing. And that's the thing is life's going to happen. You know, it's not going to be exactly. a straight line. Because then everybody would be living their dream life. And exactly. We, <laughs> exactly. Crazy way to all be doing it. And we've got these struggles to help us to grow. Uh, but even Michael Phelps in the midst of an Olympic has life happen and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. prepared enough to go through it. So it's not a matter of, of life not happening and you never have these emotions again and you don't ever have struggle. It's I'm now prepared to take steps Whatever. through it and not allow it to derail me. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's a really good point. Like you brought up too. It's that it's, it's not that it won't happen again. And that's like a misconception about that we have, we live in a world that feeds us this mentality that when I get this result, I'll be happy. So when I get the million dollars, the six pack abs, the dream house, the dream car, then I'll be happy. And you won't, I mean, it's not that you won't, but <laughs> like not to, not to make life all sound miserable. It's that you'll have another challenge. You'll have another problem. So it's this expectation that happiness is this end result leads us to far more misery and pain and suffering than if we actually accept that the journey itself is the destination, right? It's in the process, it's of getting to those results that shapes us. And that's why it's not about the shortcuts of like, you know, we live in the world again, like 14 minutes a day walking will get you six pack abs. And we all know it won't, but you see these ads on TV for this kind of nonsense all the time, right? But the, pro- the problem is it's feeding the, the idea that we should take the easiest path to the, path to the result. The reality, it's, it's in the struggle that we actually transform. It's in the hard work of, I mean, that's why lottery winners lose their money like this and it doesn't improve the quality of their lives because they haven't suffered to get that money. They haven't earned it through pain, through effort. It's in the earning it of that pain that we transform and we actually find a new us. We build a new self and it's that cultivation of the new self, that process, the highs and lows of that cultivation of the self that is ultimately happiness. Like happiness is not a momentary thing. It's this it's embracing the lows and the highs. Like one thing I like to say is that happiness is not the elimination of sadness. Happiness is the ability to find the gift in sadness. Happiness is not the elimination of sadness. It's finding the gift in sadness. Absolutely. Again, it is. It's being here present, not wishing that something in the past would change. It's not mm-hmm. wishing or hoping for something in the future. It's just being fully present right 
now yeah. with whatever that brings. Yeah. And it's, it's the ups and downs of life, right? It will bring a lot, <laughs> but, it, but it's this okay. is such a good message. And I, I love when you experience something like this and you grow yourself. Uh, it's not just for you. You know, you want to give back into the world. And that's exactly why you spent a year plus finding a team and creating products. Fearvana, the revolutionary science of how to turn fear into health, wealth, and happiness. You guys, it's on Amazon. I'll put all the links in the show notes below. But one thing it says here in my notes that I think is super cool is that you are an ultra runner, right? Mm -hmm. You've run 80 miles around a 0.2 mile loop. That's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> that was brutal. It was mental torture running around. Yeah, this was just a few weeks ago, actually. I ran 80 miles for about 21 hours around a 0.2 mile loop in my building. That's just hilarious. the monotony of that was torturous. <laughs> yes, that you play some brain games. And I actually have run two marathons. And so oh, wow. I, I do. I, I mean, that's not 80 miles. But no, but it's still... <laughs> I know the the Grant and I did a bodybuilding competition a few years ago, which again is like awesome. the nutrition side of things. And yeah. I think when you finish that stuff, you go, I could do anything. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it really builds that confidence. But yeah. you are, have said that you are not naturally built for running and that you want to show people that biology is not destiny. Belief is. Yeah, I am not like people often hear this and, you know, that think that, oh, I'm just a runner and I'm far from it. I have flat feet. I have scoliosis. I have a blood disorder that transports less oxygen through my body. Obviously, that's not a good thing when you're a runner or anybody. And that's the blood disorder I mentioned that two doctors told me would kill me in boot camp. And I also have a condition that my, like the, my body can't absorb nutrients very well. So like the villi that absorb nutrients in my esophagus are all worn out. And apparently there's some things you can do to regenerate it. So I'm working on that. But right now, those are four things that are not ideally suited for anybody, let alone an ultra runner. And the point is, though, that like, and it doesn't, that's my, that's my whole thing is that it's not because I'm special. It's because the will can override anything, the, the belief systems, our will. And I might, I'm by no means am I the fastest runner in the world, but who cares? You know, for me, my, my goal is to, to be able to show that I can go long, I can go hard, and the will can override the whatever biological defects I may have, you know, and if I can do it, anybody can do it, of course. And you do this through, it says, systemizing your life. Yes. So I am a big systems guy. I systematize everything. So what I mean by systematize is I create checklists in my life that I just follow the checklist so I don't have to think about what to do. So for example, even in my morning routine, and I have, I have, I set it up on my phone. I have this, this all, all my stuff here. I just follow the checklist step by step. So I read the checklist, I follow it. When I wake up in the day, I know exactly what to do. I have a top five list of things to do for that day. I work in 50 minute chunks with 10 minute breaks. I work about two to three chunks before I have a longer break. My nutrition is systematized. So my morning, lunch, and dinner are completely systematized. I have morning and lunch, I have smoothies. Dinner, I have like one of those Buddha bowls. So the, the, the reason being is the, the psychology behind that is you want to engage your consciousness and engage thinking to eliminate thinking. So every time you have to make a decision, you actually are draining kind of cognitive energy. They call it decision fatigue. And so the idea is that, I mean, if you think about it too, we're, we're making decisions all the time. I mean, sometimes if we don't have systematized, I could wake up in the morning and be like, okay, what do I want to eat for breakfast? I don't want to make any of those little decisions. And that's why you'll see people who are like very successful entrepreneurs like Mark Zuckerberg, Steve Jobs, they wear the same thing every day because they don't want to think about their clothes. So I want to save my cognitive and my physical energy for the work and for my training, my running, right? Everything else, I don't want to have to think. I just want to follow a system. And so if something doesn't have a system to it, I'm always building a system to it. I mean, I take it to a different level because I'm very addictive. So I even have a system for how I shower. Like I have a shower system. Uh, <laughs> you don't have to go that far. I know I'm a little neurotic, but like everything, I mean, the way my kitchen is laid out, it's all like, you know, I could tell you where it is if it was in the dark. 
You know what I mean? So like as if I was in the dark, which I did. The, I also spent seven days in darkness recently to practice stillness and embrace some of these, these other concepts. That's why I even have taken it even further since then to actually set up my life as if, if the house was completely dark, I could walk around knowing exactly where things are. So uh, really systematizing the routine, systematizing my world around me, everything. And you guys, when you hear that, it may take some time to set it up, but then it's smooth sailing. And you don't exactly. have to anymore. Once and the you, habit is there, yeah. it's easy. And you'll experiment. Like my morning routine that I have now has not, I didn't, it wasn't the first morning routine I ever came up with and be like, this works. No. And when I try to feel like, okay, this doesn't work. This is not good. And in fact, only since the darkness retreat that I just did a few weeks ago, only since then have I added another thing to my morning routine. Now, one of the things I just added is to read a Medal of Honor citation every morning. A Medal of Honor is the highest award for valor in the United States military. So to receive it, people have done things like jumping on a grenade to save their fellow human beings. You know, it's like these insane acts of, I would not insane, not insane in a bad way, insane in the most beautiful way of, of transcending the self in service of someone greater. So I, and they're one paragraph citation. So every morning I read a citation to remind me that it's not about me. It's about something more. And, uh, but I just added that to the routine. So the point is that this will, it's a constant process of iteration, experimentation. And then once you get it, you just follow the checklist. So the app I use, if anybody's interested, I use an app called Todoist to create my systems. I'm just looking. Yeah, Todoist. So I use this app to then build like, you know, all my little checklists for everything that in, in my world. Ooh, that's so good. And again, you guys, if you think like, oh my gosh, I'm so overwhelmed by that. Just remember, once you have your habit, it's easy. It's like you don't think about brushing your teeth in the morning. You just do yeah. it. And the goal is to do that upfront work. So then you can really have brain space for more creative things. You can exactly. create your businesses. You can learn new skills because you're not feeling overwhelmed because you don't know where the pen is again. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, if you're feeling overwhelmed, just do one step at a time. Start with just one routine. I mean, I didn't have all these systems down. It took me a long time to get to where I'm at now, right? To be very clear. So thank you for making that point. And I really, yeah, I think that's a really good point to stress is that you know, start with one, start with the morning routine. Once you got one down, then go to the next, you know, like even now, I've only just systematized my morning lunch and dinners in the way that I currently follow it. It's been tweaked a lot because my nutrition intake has, my caloric intake has gone up. So I have like a thousand calorie morning smoothie. And so it's a beast of a smoothie, <laughs> but I've only just like developed that. So it's, you know, everything's going to constantly be, you, and again, that ties into it's the journey, not the destination. So it's even the process of building this has its own charm, has its own fun when you kind of view it in that way. And then once it gets to the point that, okay, this is good to go, let me figure out the next one, you know? And, uh, and then you don't waste energy on that anymore, like cognitive thinking energy. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So tell me about the seven days in darkness. So yeah, I recently spent, it was just, this was also just a few weeks ago. It's been an intense couple of months, actually. I spent did the 80 mile run, then soon after that, did, I, 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 my, my problem was, or my challenge was, I was terrified of stillness. I'm really scared of stillness. I was good at doing, good at the grind, good at the drive, you know, but scared of being still. And uh, actually, I had broken my sobriety when I made the decision to go sober because my marriage had ended and gone through some tough times. And, uh, and not because ultimately I made, I made choices, but, uh, but as a result of certain stressors and I broke. And so I was like, okay, there's still some gaps that I need to work on. So I decided to go deep within in obviously a very extreme way because that's just how I do things. Uh, <laughs> so I spent seven days in pitch darkness. Like you cannot see your hand in front of you. Darkness 24 seven isolation and silence. So you're sitting in a room completely alone, silent in darkness for 20 for 24 seven for seven days. And is this monitored with people. Like, are there other people there? Or did you just go do it yourself? 
so there's like a place that I did this okay. call like, the darkness. Yeah, no, good question. It's a, the, the place was in Germany. It's called like, so the darkness retreats, they call it darkness retreats. So the lady who's hosted it has spent a lot of time doing different spiritual kind of, so she started her own darkness retreat. And, um, the value in doing this versus let's say like, have you heard of those silent retreats? Like a Vipassana? Yeah. yeah. So those are a lot more popular. Those are actually what I was going to do. I didn't know darkness retreats existed. I was going to go do one of those things where you're basically in silence in 10 days in this sort of in these environments, but you're not in darkness. And I stumbled in the idea of the darkness retreat and the value to me and, and I experienced was that unlike the silent retreat where you're still looking at the world in darkness, you're removing your visual senses. So you're removing one of the primary senses through which we engage with the world. So by removing that, you have no things to see around you to attach your consciousness to. Like I'm not seeing a tree or a wall or a door to think about. You're forced as a result to go within. So I like to say that your soul becomes a mirror to itself. And by going within, it's extremely challenging, of course. I mean, you're just sitting still in a dark room with nothing to do, nowhere to go. <laughs> you know, Did you have any aha moments throughout those seven days? Absolutely plenty. Uh, I mean, it was basically a transition, of course, sleeping. moments. There were some moments where I was like, Damn it, I have a long time left in the dark. <laughs> you know, some of those other moments where I'm just letting my mind go where it goes and I was journaling in the dark. So I actually had like a little like kind of ruler on a page to, you know, journal as much as possible. And the insights I got were deeply profound in the journal. And also, and other than that, also just moments of meditating and being still for hours on end. So that itself to, to master stillness of mind to that degree. I mean, literally, you're meditating for God knows how long because you're just sitting there staring still, right? So that was beautiful. But even the insights I got, like I got deep understandings of very abstract uh, and profound concepts that I'd wrestled with for a long time. Like, and I'm again, I'm not saying my answers are the right answers, like right, whatever right means, but my answers, answers that satisfied me about the nature of God, the nature of enlightenment, the nature of the self, you know, these very like existential questions about our purpose here on the planet that I got these answers to that were deeply profound, deeply profound. But like by far the most profound part was coming back into the light. After seven days, seeing the light for the first time was awe-inspiring. I mean, I remember sitting there just thinking to myself that I want to be able to look at the world every single day through those eyes, through the eyes that I saw. And I actually remember saying to myself that I felt grateful for every bit of pain that I've ever experienced in life because only in that case, it was a very literal way, but even figuratively, only by being in the darkness can you see the light the way you see the light having gone through it. You cannot see the light in a certain way unless you've been through the dark. And of course, literally and figuratively. So whatever pain I've gone through in life has allowed me to see beauty in a different way, has allowed me to experience highs in a different way. And we all go through pain. And one of the most beautiful ways to handle is be grateful for your pain because it has shaped you. It has molded you. It has turned you into something that you would not be without your pain. And we grow stronger through that pain. So I was great. I mean, the, like seeing the light and just coming out of the darkness that way was deeply profound. Yeah, you you come into the world and you're like, it's so beautiful. Right, <laughs> exactly. And once yeah. you once you open the door, the so I'm not saying I walk around looking at the world every day through those eyes. Now, of course, we get lost in the day to day. But having opened the doorway to that experience, I can now consciously access it. So even so, sometimes when I remember, like when I'm conscious, like yesterday, I was out, I was out running 20 miles. And I just remember pausing, like looking at the world and just remembering that moment. And because I've now accessed it, because I've experienced that, I can often reopen the door to that moment simply by really engaging it at a high level of consciousness and awareness, right? Yeah. But I had to tap into it in a way to then, you know, to allow myself to keep walking through that door, if that makes yeah. sense. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I've got a couple questions about your book, Fearvana. Mm-hmm. What was one of like your your favorite parts of writing it? Is there any piece of the book that's your favorite or a story throughout it that you yeah. just continue to come back to? Uh, the writing was incredibly hard for me. <laughs> writing a book, I mean, I know you you know you've got one as well. Like anybody, new respect for authors. Uh, <laughs> it is a brutal process, at least for me. Again, it was really really challenging. But I so I would say like. I wouldn't say that um, I thoroughly enjoyed the writing part uh, personally. I did, I did find value. There were moments where the flow of it was really beautiful. Sharing the message has been really beautiful. But like the interviewing some of the people that I interviewed for the book, you know, like the stories that I came across. So I interviewed this one woman who uh, I, I call her Alice in the book. I changed her name for the sake of, of protecting her identity. But I met her and interviewed her. Ama- I mean, she, her story is just insane too. She had been raped multiple times between six and eight years old. She had been, her father was in jail, mom was drug addict, alcohol, kicked out of the house, gang raped by five people at 15. I mean, just awful things have happened to this woman. And then her take on it though, she doesn't, she did not let this break her. You know, now she's happily married, successful professionally, has a child. At the time when I was writing the book, she was pregnant. But um, like the way she viewed life, you know, she, she, she said that this would not let her break her. This made her stronger. You know, and uh, it, I mean, I was learning, I was, I was in tears listening to this woman in, in, the, in the interview and just for hearing her story. Even another woman I interviewed, like paralyzed from the neck down, lost her son to an accidental medical surgery when he was 17, then lost like the second closest person to her soon after that. When I met her, she had broken both her femurs because she had accidentally fallen and she can't move, but she can feel all the pain in the world. Uh, and she's an aunt. She's a very close friend of my mom's. Uh, that's how I met her. Her name is Charu. That's her actual name. And even now she's in horrible pain and suffering. Like she just recently broke her collarbone. Uh, she's like, I mean, on oxygen tanks, the amount this woman has suffered is unreal, unreal, you know? And, and yet you meet her and she will have the most positive attitude you'll ever meet. Like I ever experienced. She's always smiling at life. She's like, Oh, this is, it's okay. You know, could be. And she's always saying like, yeah, whatever happens, happens to the best kind of thing. And I'm like, it's easy to say that sometimes when life is good, but in her position to say that it's like, how do you like, I mean, so, it was awe-inspiring. I learned so much about courage, about the human capacity, the human spirit. I mean, to transcend so much more than we think we can transcend, you know? Uh, and we are, and I believe, I believe from a fundamental ethos that if any one person can do it, anybody can do it kind of mentality. And so, and again, you know, don't have to get technical about it. Like I'm not going to be a Shaquille O'Neal kind of thing. But the point is the mindset is like anything we can all have that mindset. And the people I learned from was incredible. Ooh, I'm I'm super excited to get my hands on this and read through it myself because it seems like what we're saying too is is it's not the actual thing. It's not the the stra- the trauma, the stress, the whatever. It's the meaning we put behind it. Absolutely. And when you create that space, you can choose the meaning. We all have the ability to choose the meaning we give to situations. And when you choose the meaning, that ends up being the reality you experience. Yeah, love it. I mean, so absolutely. It's all about that meaning. Viktor Frankl puts it beautifully. Mr. Viktor Frankl wrote Man's Search for Meaning, one of the most profound books I've ever read too. So for anybody not, not aware, he was a psychiatrist who survived the Holocaust in many concentration camps, lost his family. So it's a very powerful book. And one of the things he says is between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space lies our power to choose our response. And in our response lies our growth and our freedom. And that space is everything. And when I say between stimulus, it's not just the external stimulus of this world happening. It's even our internal stimulus of the emotions that we don't control. 
remember we talked about like I don't control my brain's emotions in response to certain stimuli, right? Like to external stimuli because our brain just has developed patterns over our time and we're not those emotions. So what we do in that space of the emotion and our conscious higher self, whatever you want to call it, the divine self, the conscious self, the aware self is, is, is everything like that space and the meanings we assign to things. So like you said, yeah, we, we assign meanings and those meanings will shape our life. Ooh, so good. Okay. So I want to know about a testimony of somebody who's read your book and I'm sure you've heard stories over the past year. Tell us a story of somebody who read it and then had the courage to pursue their dreams or pivoted themselves. Tell me a, a feedback that you've gotten. Yeah. I mean, it's been beautiful when I see the Amazon reviews. It's just very humbling to read those. I'm trying to think of one specific one, maybe that stands on top of my head that came recently. Because uh, yeah, I've been blessed to say now that there have been a lot. Uh, the book sold thousands of copies over 42 countries, 43 now. Uh, but like one recent one, I think I just got this off my head. Somebody just, uh, um, it was a, some, a little while ago now, but she had heard me on a podcast and she wrote to me saying for the, that she had never in her life heard that fear, stress, and anxiety could be useful and could be valuable to her. And so that's what's kind of cool about this message is simply hearing it plants a seed. It creates a mindset shift that will last with you. Like that, I think, you know, is the most powerful thing is that everybody's going to go through fear, stress, and anxiety at some point in their lives. And most people are telling them, even the big dogs in the self-help world are saying, here's how you get rid of them. But nobody, it's rare for people to hear that, oh, this can be useful. This can be good. So like, even when I did a talk recently in India, this one kid came up to me um, and, and was like crying and just saying that, and, and India has actually the highest student suicide rate in the world. So, you know, I know that these kids are really going through a lot. So he came to me crying and said like that this talk had just changed his life. And after he was like literally tearing up saying, cause he was going through depression before this and, and all kinds of stuff, you know, with stress of the, the exam pressures and all this kind of stuff and reframing that we can use this, that it's an access point to love, you know, uh, even, and even now another story came to me, another guy, he had this, he was terrified of public speaking. His whole message was all about love and self-love. And looking at fear as an access point of love had just completely shifted. Again, the, the, the simple mindset shifts sometimes create a paradigm shift that allows you to reframe how you view your work and your message. But, uh, and beyond just the book itself, even the funds we've been able to raise, this is actually just, just, just happened a few days ago. Um, this one of the charities that we've been supporting through our fundraising for the books since all the profits are going to charity is these, these girls who are victims of sex trafficking. One of my friends runs this organization. And so now they're doing a tour through Europe where they're sharing their stories through these uh, theatrical performances. And they're also going to go on hikes and stuff like that. So they're actually in Europe as we speak, uh, as I'm sitting here right now with you. So that's really top of my head is that because of the book sales, we've been able to donate thousands of dollars to help them do this. And these girls are like the sweetest. I mean, I know them. I've met them. They're just the sweetest girl you've ever met. And like, I mean, just the hell they've been through is inhuman. And to be able to support them is... Uh, it's, I mean, it's everything. It makes life worth it, you know? <laughs> oh my goodness. Absolutely. You can feel your passion. And when you're so connected to the mission and you're so connected to the message, you get up in the morning on purpose. You know yeah. what I mean? I love that. Yeah. And it helps and, you transcend your own stuff. Like, I mean, I still go through my lows, but I remember that it's not about me. Like at this point now, I have enough validation to show that the Fearvana message is making an impact. It like it, you know, the book and then the message is leading, it's leading a mark on people that now I have enough validation to show, okay, it's not about me and my stuff. Get out of your own way. So, I mean, I'm good. I have the systems, but don't get me wrong. I'm human. So I go through lows. And so sometimes it's just reminding that get out of your own way because it's about something more. Absolutely. You know? yeah, yeah, absolutely. So what is one thing you do every day that keeps you like that you couldn't live without that keeps you filled up? Without a doubt, like the go-to is my exercise. I would say that exercise is 
And it's something barring like serious physical issues, almost everybody can do. And I mean, I cannot recommend that enough. I know we talk, I do meditation as well. I'm valuable, but like one neuroscientist calls exercise miracle growth for the brain. Because on a neurological level, the way it improves our synaptic connections, our ability to learn. Another neuroscientist said that if they could put the effects of exercise into a pill, it'd be the best selling pill of all time. It combats depression. It combats, I mean, everything. It's the best thing you can do for not just your body, but your mind, body, and spirit. So, I mean, again, and it's something almost anybody can do barring like, you know, of course, serious physical issues. I mean, I literally, that's like my go-to method. And even if, even if you look at the context of Firavana, which is develop a positive relationship with suffering, which I think is the most, again, the most important skill to, to master in life, exercise is a training ground for suffering well. I mean, it teaches you how to suffer well. You know it. Like you said, you run marathons, you lifted. It's miserable. It's painful. It's hard. <laughs> but when you tap into that space and you rise above the suffering, you see what you're capable of and it trains you. That, so then when, then when you go through other kinds of suffering, it teaches you, hey, I did this. I know how to suffer. So I always I think of it as a training ground to suffer well, which is why, like, I mean, I'm, I got a 100-miler schedule later this month. I've got many, many, many more ultras that I'm doing. And I mean, when you go through these, you go through some deep, intense lows where life is just awful. <laughs> like, why did I do this? Yeah, exactly. Get to the finish exactly. line, you remember. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, Akshay, you have been an amazing inspiration. Your story is powerful. Your message is powerful. You guys absolutely head over to Amazon to purchase Fearvana. And it feels like no matter where you are in life, whether you're currently experiencing a high, a low, a pivot, a change, these are skills that are going to help you level up at any time. So thank you so much for continuing to share your message with the world. And it has been amazing to get to talk to you in this way. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for hanging out with us today. I want to hear your aha moment from today's amazing episode. If you could leave a review at whatever podcast player you choose to listen from, Apple Podcast, CastBox, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you're listening from, leave a review and share with us your favorite part of today's episode. Thanks for hanging out. And remember to dream big.